The United States has three diplomatic missions in Belgium, an ambassador to NATO, an ambassador to Belgium, and an ambassador to the European Union. From trade disputes to Iran sanctions to immigration to tourism, managing U.S.-EU relations can be a stressful job. This week, we welcome former U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. We'll be talking about a Holocaust exhibit he's sponsoring. We'll also get his take on the burning issues from both sides of the Atlantic, from Europe's Iran policy to the war in Ukraine, Donald Trump, and the 2024 election cycle. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insiders Podcast. back to Jewish Insiders Podcast, limited liability podcast on all your dials. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Good to be with you, Rich. Great to be with you, Jared. And uh, very fortunate to see the ceasefire now holding in Israel after several days of massive rocket barrages coming from Islamic Jihad in Gaza and Israeli military uh, very precision strikes taking out leaders of the Iran-directed, Iran-backed Islamic Jihad terrorist group uh, in Gaza. Hamas, not, at least to our knowledge, getting involved uh, in the uh, war effort, Uh, not seeing uh, other actors on other fronts getting involved. A big question, I think, now is, has Israel effectively restored its deterrence uh, on its borders, uh, deterrence that uh, many feared uh, had been eroded by the judicial reform upheaval and protests in the country? And 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 here at home in Washington, Rich, I know I always get on you when you don't criticize Republicans who do really dumb and hurtful and mean and awful things. So I'm going to take the liberty of calling out Representative Rashida Tlaib and Senator Bernie Sanders, who co-sponsored something called a Nakba remembrance. Oh, yeah. Um, because I think it's really important that Democrats stand up and criticize other Democrats when they do really bad and hurtful things. And listen, I, I as much or more than many believe in a still believe in a two state solution and still believe we need to find a way to have peace with dignity with the Palestinian people and, and Israelis who, who can live safe and secure lives. Uh, but that commemorating the Nakba, which which effectively calls for Israel not to exist, that's not a way to do that, right? That is that is people who want to repudiate and erase Israel from the map. And for a member of Congress, any member of Congress, not the, not especially not a Jewish member of Congress, to help shepherd an event like that to happening is just beyond the pale and is inexcusable. And so I think it's important that when Democrats do things that are 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 repugnant, that we stay stand up and say so. So this is me standing up and saying so, Rich. Uh, well, I appreciate you doing that. I will I will do my best to bring uh, evidence of some crazy Republican to our next podcast meeting uh, to share. I, I didn't do my I mean, there's plenty out there, Rich. Don't worry. I, I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Uh, but but I think you're, you're spot on on this. Uh, for those that weren't following the story, the, this program was originally reserved in a uh, house uh, part of the Capitol, which part of the part of the Capitol Visitor Center, uh, rooms that are technically controlled by the Speaker of the House. Many people didn't know that that's a power of the Speaker. Uh, I only remember that from back in my House staffer days, when in order to get a room in the Capitol, which was a much revered room for public events, because uh, it's easy for the press to get there from the gallery, 
uh, that you would have to go through the speaker's office for approval. And if something happened big in the calendar, you always were like fearful that the speaker might just pull the room suddenly and you would lose the room and have to scramble and find somewhere else. Uh, so apparently still retains that power, even with uh, the new uh, Capital Visitor Center, which came online a few years ago, different from, from when I was there. Uh, however, uh, the Speaker of the House, was uh, they flagged this issue for him. He pulled the room, uh, replaced it uh, with an Israel education uh, seminar that he was going to participate in to celebrate Israel. And uh, I immediately saw that and I said, oh, she's just going to go to the Senate side and find a senator you know, to open up, it's going to be, it's going to be Bernie Sanders. And sure enough, you know, 24 hours later, Bernie Sanders is, is hosting the event. I will say, how did he do that? He did that with his committee uh, chairmanship, something that, you know, the, the chairman of the committee, he's the Senate committee on health, education, labor, and pensions committee, or the help committee chair, uh, which means uh, uh, he gets control uh, over, uh, you know, the, the rooms uh, right. in, in, that committee that it, rooms, the committee rooms that it controls. Uh, and so he said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll just open that up. I am sure that if the ranking member had known about it in advance, if other members of the committee had known about it, I will say after the fact, they should still protest. They should say never again should our committee be using its resources like this, even if the chair is, is Bernie Sanders and saying so. If enough of the committee says we shouldn't do this, by the way, they could organize a vote, I'm sure, try to figure out a procedural way inside the committee. Uh, to force force a vote on the rule uh, of the committee, that would be quite interesting to watch. But be that as it may, Jared, the one thing I, I remember is uh, I'm always struck, and I, I tell the story a lot. We we had your good friend, uh, the delegate from Virgin Islands, uh, on the podcast a, a while ago, uh, Delegate Plaskett, uh, and and I remember she made this comment very innocently that she really felt that inside the Black Caucus, inside the Democratic Caucus more, more broadly, there could really be an advancement on support for Israel if we could just solve this Nakba thing, right? Had no idea what Nakba was or what it meant. Or, right, or and, it, it. and that's why it, I remember it very well. And I yeah. think, you know, she was taken aback by our reaction. Right, right. So, so my point is, you know what? What an opportunity here. What an opportunity. You know what Jewish members of, of the Democratic Caucus should do? They should organize a, a members-only meeting now to discuss and get off their chest what Nakba is, why it's offensive, and use this as a learning moment to, to drive a wedge between those that have no idea and are just following along whatever Rashida Tlaib says is necessary you know, in their intersectional progressive circles to what it really means, what it represents, and why it's wrong. Indeed. All right, Rich, let's get to our guest. Gordon Sondland is now the former United States ambassador to the European Union, serving from 2018 to 2020. Uh, he was also a longtime American businessman, grew up in Washington State uh, in the hotel uh, business, uh, chairman of Providence uh, Hotels, uh, still doing that uh, within the hotel fund uh, area. Uh, also a recent author of The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. Excited to have him on. Ambassador Gordon Sondland, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. I think for anyone who's heard your name or seen your face, the place probably most of our listeners will remember you from, for better or worse, was the House impeachment hearings. But you've done a lot in your career. You're still doing a lot. And I'd love, before we even get into all of that, for people to get to know you and your background separate from whatever 
we heard or saw on TV, your family history, the home you were raised in, incredible stories, uh, as you've told about in the past. Tell our listeners about you, your mom and dad, where they came from, what they went through, and how that sort of formed who you are. Well, thanks, Rich. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to have been born in the United States after World War II. My parents were immigrants and both Holocaust survivors. Uh, they both left Germany at the very beginning of the hostilities. And my father wound up separated from my mother for almost seven years uh, while he was fighting the Germans with the British Army and the French Foreign Legion. My mother left for Uruguay pregnant with my sister, who is 20 years my senior. Uh, they all reunited after the war through a whole series of happenstance and luck and wound up immigrating to Seattle, Washington, where I was born, as I said, 20 years after my sister was born. So I have a, a sibling who's quite a bit older, same parents, and no siblings in between. So a skeptical person would say I was a mistake. <laughs> I'm I'm the youngest of four uh, with a ten year gap, so I I always believed that as well until my wedding day and the speech my parents gave uh, illuminated <laughs> everything. It was actually an attempt to finally get a girl instead of having four boys, uh, and and they failed in that endeavor. But it was nice to learn that right after getting married. Well, my parents got one of each, and uh, you know I was an only child basically because when I was born, my sister was getting married and left the house, so I I grew up. Uh, very much uh, with the characteristics of an only child. And that background that they came with, I imagine, was that you know, historical moment of World War II and the Holocaust family uh, being left behind. Uh, what was that like on your upbringing? Did you feel any of that? What was your Jewish upbringing like? Well, my Jewish upbringing was in Reform Judaism, um, you know, we, we did not keep kosher. Uh, we did not practice religiously at home, but I was bar mitzvah. Uh, I did go to temple. Uh, and uh, I would call myself Jewish light uh, as opposed to, you know, <laughs> regular Jewish. Um, to me, it's as much cultural as it is religious. Uh, but, you know, as I've gotten older, I'm watching my children. Uh, my, my former spouse was Protestant. The children were raised uh, with a little bit of experience and exposure to both religions. And I see that both of them uh, take their Jewish background and heritage very seriously. Uh, and in fact, my son uh, right now said that he will only date Jewish girls. My daughter is not quite there yet, but um, it's interesting to watch how, how this evolves. Ambassador, you've sponsored a traveling exhibit of artifacts from Auschwitz. Tell us about the exhibit and tell us about how you got involved with that. Well, the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California, which is one of the most uh, beautiful and consequential presidential libraries in the United States, uh, has really taken on a veneer of sort of bipartisanship and sort of a convening uh, place, as you will recall in, in reading the recent news, uh, the president of Taiwan uh, was uh, brought there to meet with uh, our congressional leadership as sort of a neutral place for her to uh, engage with them. So I felt that the Reagan Library, when they decided to put on a show called Auschwitz not long ago, not far away, and they presented it to me as a potential sponsorship, 
I thought it just hit all of the right notes. And this is a show that was curated elsewhere and traveled to Reagan uh, and is there now for the better part of a year uh, and apparently is experiencing, you know, sold out crowds almost every day. It's quite a show. And I would strongly recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about the Holocaust, who has learned potentially to deny the Holocaust. I think it gives a very, very strong and compelling argument that yes, the Holocaust did occur. Yes, people, Jews and others were killed. And it's something that's never to be repeated. So regardless of where you're coming from, what religion you are, I think this, uh, this show at the Reagan Library, which by the way, is a beautiful place to visit, besides the show itself, is, is really, really compelling and important. I'm curious, Ambassador, it's, it's a unique setting for an exhibit like this. I would not think Reagan Library, Holocaust, Auschwitz, artifacts, you know, things like that. I would think Holocaust Museum, regional Holocaust museums, you know, Jewish organizations, Simon Wiesenthal, you know, et cetera. Why the Reagan Library? It's, it's interesting to me. Why, why is the interest there? And, and how did you, you know, sort of see that as, as part of the Reagan Library's legacy? Well, if you go back and listen to some of Ronald Reagan's speeches about the Holocaust, about these camps in particular, uh, about Holocaust deniers, I mean, Reagan was in many ways ahead of his time in being one of the early uh, adopters, for lack of better a better description, uh, about reminding uh, America, uh, particularly America, how um, someone can spread lies and get an ordinary citizen to turn against their fellow citizens uh, in a way that would be otherwise unthinkable. So I can't think of a better uh, venue for this than the Ronald Reagan Library because it's Reagan's legacy that I think has helped keep, uh, you know, the whole Holocaust uh, remembrance issue alive. Ambassador, let me ask you a question about the state of, of Holocaust education and and its bearing on, on anti-Semitism. There was a recent article, which I don't know how I feel about it, but it raises some interesting questions by Dara Horn that basically says uh, that we've there is a tremendous amount of effort uh, in the American Jewish community and in other places placed on Holocaust education, as there should be, but that sometimes it sort of lets people off the hook uh, who for other types of anti-Semitism, meaning if you're not committing Holocaust-like atrocities, like that's the ultimate goalpost where, whereas you know, true dealing in anti-Semitism, um, true tolerance is obviously several thousand steps in front of that. Does that make any sense? Does that article hold any water or, or that, that kind of framing hold any water with you as somebody who's, who's been active in the, in the Holocaust education space? It doesn't hold a lot of water with me. I mean, I like to take other human beings, whether they're Jewish, whether they're black, whether they're Asian, whatever uh, re religion, race, or creed they are, and I like to take them one at a time. And I can dislike someone because I dislike them as a human being, not because of their race or religion. And I should have the right to do that without being labeled, you know, anti-black, anti-Semitic, uh, anti-this, anti-that. So I'm, the Holocaust to me was a more holistic, 
government sanctions, systemic oppression of an entire uh, religion, uh, where which resulted in millions of fatalities. I think they're in very different categories. I'm curious, Ambassador, as people are seeing this exhibit. Uh, obviously, we we've had now several decades of you know bringing classrooms to Washington D.C. to the Holocaust Museum. Uh, you know, local efforts uh, to put on the state level requirements into curriculum uh, for our K to twelve education, Holocaust uh, education of some kind. A lot of the polling we've seen, the survey data showing that even with all of that attempted education there's still in this sort of younger generation, the social media generation, a very low aptitude, a low understanding, recognition of key facts, key, you know, key historical moments uh, to be able to regurgitate anything in that uh, Holocaust education that they've, they should have received. When you see people go through this exhibit, what are you hoping people take away? What are you seeing people take away more importantly? What kind of people are coming to the exhibit? And, you know, when they see this and they're holding an artifact, does it somehow do you make it more powerful, more real than just showing a movie or, or just having something in a book in a classroom? Do you feel like this is somehow a better way of doing it by having real things you touch, you see, and, and, it, and it hits you harder? Well, let's unpack both of those. The first one about the inability to regurgitate uh, is, I think, a systemic problem in all types of education. Um, I think that our educational system, both uh, you know, primary, secondary, post-secondary, has gone away from uh, teaching important facts, uh, whether they're math, whether they're science, whether they're history and has gone off into a um, sort of a progressive agenda of trying to, um, you know, reprogram people uh, to the detriment of their own education. And I could go on for hours about that. So the fact that the Holocaust and the history of the Holocaust is swept up in um, uh, these distractions uh, in universities, in high schools, doesn't surprise me at all. As far as this exhibit is concerned, I think when you combine the three-dimensional objects with the stories and photographs that are on the wall, and then you add the audio guide, which walks you through this exhibition, uh, even someone who, has, you know, who landed here from planet Mars and has never heard of the Holocaust, uh, I think it's hugely impactful on anyone, young or old, rich or poor, Jewish or Gentile, it doesn't matter uh, if they truly uh, take in the exhibit in the way in which it was meant to be taken in. Ambassador, so you served as the United States Ambassador to the European Union under President Trump. You wrote a fascinating book called The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy. Uh, and I, I'm just interested, um, we have a lot of issues Rich and I were interested to ask you about, but first, on Iran... Why do you think the the European Union is is uh, Rich would say in love with I would say tolerant of the regime in Tehran and do you ever think we'll see the the European Union get tough with Iran and and more specifically the IRGC? Well, this is an issue that I worked on personally, and so I have a little bit of 
knowledge that might exceed just the average person reading about the, this matter, you know, in various news publications. I realized that, you know, there was a tremendous pride of authorship in the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, by members of the European Union staff, particularly Federica Mogherini, who at the time served as the HRVP, which is the equivalent of our Secretary of State. And, you know, she thought that the deal that they had cut, she and John Kerry essentially worked together on this deal. She thought the deal that they had cut with Iran was the best possible deal the West could get. And, you know, I, to take her at her word and in all good faith, I'd say, okay, fine, but let's look at the facts on the ground, not what happened when you cut the deal, but what's happening today. What's happening at the, what was happening at the time was Iran, yes, had, had, you know, basically attenuated some of their proliferation, not all of it. There was a lot going on in secret that the intelligence community knew about, but the public did not. But what's more important was the JCPOA allowed a lot of cash to flow to Iran. And as you both know, malign activities, mischief, terrorism, all of these things take money. They're not free. And Iran was getting plenty of money from the West in order to conduct these activities. That money was not going to uplift their citizenry. So, you know, in the face of all of the evidence that we presented to the EU, and by the way, they had their own, they didn't need ours. Uh, they were so, uh, so much clinging to this deal that, you know, don't bother us with the facts. We're very, very happy with, uh, you know, what, what, what we've done here. And frankly, what was driving their desire to not withdraw from it was the business they were doing with Iran. There were a lot of countries and a lot of businesses in those countries, particularly in France, getting rich dealing with Iran. They didn't want to give up those riches for the, you know, betterment of the globe. And obviously, we've now moved from Mogherini to Burrell. I don't know what your inter your interactions were at all. If you if you've if you've had any dealings with Joseph Burrell, he, he seems to be as in love with the JCPOA as as Mogherini was, perhaps even more so. Without the the same type of excuse, right now, obviously, a big push to try to get the EU to designate the IRGC as a terrorist organization. Burrell resisting that, trying to whip the Council uh, against it. Uh, big letter bipartisan from Capitol Hill on this a push from the European Parliament, which has been very strong on this. D do you think there is any hope in, in this happening so long as Borrell and, and the E3 continue to hold this candle for the JCPOA? Or is is that IRGC designation sort of like their hill to die on their Alamo to save the deal? I think von der Leyen is the counterweight to Burrell. Burrell is a hard left communist. And I don't say that in a pejorative way. That's a fact. And he he would be the first to acknowledge that and be proud of it. Um, you know, Mogherini was far more of a centrist uh, than Burrell. I think the subtle difference between Burrell and Mogherini is Mogherini had a real loathing for the U.S., which she covered up very well by talking about her trips to the U.S., her friends in the U.S., the wonderful time she's had here. Whereas I, I really believe deep down inside, she did not really like the United States. I think Burrell likes and appreciates the United States, 
uh, particularly those in our leadership who share his political views. So I think that that is a little bit of a help. But where I really think there's a big help is the difference between Jean-Claude Juncker, um, uh, Ursula von der Leyen's predecessor, and von der Leyen. Von der Leyen uh, is a center-right person. She's an ex-defense minister. She has and had access to intelligence as good as ours. And she knows what's going on with Iran. And she also knows who in her 27-member bloc is the problem. Um, I think that the way we have been interacting with von der Leyen, at least based on what I can see, has not been as effective as it could be. And for our listeners, von der Leyen being the president of the of the EU. Uh, yes, my apologies. She is the president. She is she is the equivalent of the president of the United States. I mean, there is no equivalence with the EU because it's an organization and so on. But when the when she meets with other leaders, she meets with her uh, counterpart. If she were to come to the United States, she would be the counterpart of President Biden. Well, it's interesting analysis, and I, I do. I know Joe, uh, uh, Jared wants to uh, to transition probably into uh, Ukraine as well. And we'd love to get your views there. But before we leave Iran, your analysis of Burrell is so interesting to me because it suggests to me that it re- it would require a real policy shift from Washington that in some ways Burrell gets away with this because Washington's policy is ambiguous to be, to be sort of positive about it. Um, sort of still pining in policy being trying to get back to the nuclear deal gives, gives him the pathway to protect all policies to preserve the pathway back to a nuclear deal. If I might interject, this sounds very partisan yeah. and it's not meant to be, But a lot of the Biden foreign policy, unfortunately, is what I would characterize as petulant foreign policy. And while I am not a fan today of Donald Trump, I served under him. I've made it clear publicly that I do not support him for re-election or for election, I should say, um, based on a whole host of issues that I'm happy to discuss and I have publicly there were I'm getting Jared excited. There, there were a lot. There were a lot of things in his foreign policy uh, that I thought were correct, were effective. The J, the withdrawal from the JCPOA is clearly one of them. And you know, I think that a lot of the Biden policies were simply, when I call them petulant diplomacy, it's basically if Trump said left, I'm going to say right. If Trump said up, I'm going to say down without any real thoughtful analysis about was Trump correct, even though I don't like Trump, I don't agree with Trump, I beat Trump, was he correct on this issue? I think very little of that went on initially in the Biden administration. There was a race to see how many policies they could reverse. And I think a lot of babies got thrown out with the bathwater. And this is one. And the, the one exception being the embracing of the Abraham Accords, uh, you know, which even I will go on and say publicly, you know, uh, call Hawk a vote to President Trump for, for getting that done. Total game changer in the region. But Ambassador, I wanted to ask you about Ukraine. Um, you met President Zelensky quite early on. Could you have ever imagined him when you first met him as becoming this sort of Churchillian figure uh, when you first met him? Uh, I didn't think he came across to me as a Churchillian figure. I think he came across initially as a breath of fresh air 
of a person who was a different generation than the previous leadership, than Petro Poroshenko, his predecessor. He was not as tightly connected to the oligarch system. He had made some money independently of that oligarch system in the entertainment business. He sold his business for uh, a handsome profit. Uh, He was running on corruption reform, among other things, about bringing the West closer to Ukraine, about creating uh, investment-grade credit on the part of Ukraine, ultimately joining the EU and NATO. So all of those things were kind of in the mix. And when we met, um, I knew immediately that he and President Trump would get along well if they had a chance to get together because he was funny, he was sharp, uh, he was not intimidated by anyone, and so on. But no one could even guess how tough a guy this really was, because he hadn't been tested then. And there's nothing, uh, there's nothing like testing a leader when the bullets start flying. And I think his quote, and I'm, I'm probably going to misquote him a little, But his quote about, I don't need a ride out of here, I need more ammunition, or I need more bullets, or something to that effect, I think will go down in history as one of the great political quotes, period. And certainly he's made the the ubiquitous uh, olive green uh, t-shirt and sweatshirt uh, famous. And, and, you know, famously saying he's going to keep wearing it till the war is over. Um, even, and with, when, even with his audience with the Pope a couple of days ago, he wore it instead yeah. of wearing his suit and tie. And I know a lot of people said it was disrespectful, but I think it would have been disrespectful of him to his troops and to his people to not wear it. I think the idea is when he's sitting across from the Pope, Uh, Wearing a suit and tie, it's easy to forget that there's a war going on and that people are dying. And I think what he did was completely correct and appropriate. And and certainly something that'll be taught in, you know, in seminars on political communication for years to come, the use of that green T-shirt, right? Well, the Uh, use of social media as well, revolutionized, really rallying the entire world. He wore black at the Vatican out of respect. Okay. Oh, well, you know, he he, has has different colors for different occasions. (laughs) But when he was in Washington, when he was in Washington with President Biden, he was was in the green shirt. Anyway, I've always been fascinated by- Well, no, because we like camo in the US and the Pope likes black. So- Right, 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 exactly. Knows his, he knows his audience. But you know, Ambassador, <laughs> that, that there were criticisms on, on the joint address and 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 sort of the way he, he interacted in Washington as well. And I think your your comments on his interaction with the Pope, I think, are apt for his interactions in Washington as well. Exactly. You know, you can't you can't all of a sudden dress up and act like, you know, now I'm out of my country. And it's peaceful where I am, and I can temporarily forget what's going on. Because when you're the commander-in-chief, even being away from your country for a few short hours where you've made the decision that it's in the best interests of your people to go and have these personal meetings to help encourage additional aid, additional weapons, to soothe people's uh, anxiety about the war, whatever your mission is, and you're away for even a day or two, I think that you know the communication back to your own people and to the rest of the world that this war is still raging is critical. And I think 
you're right, this will be taught in the future that wearing that uniform that he wears is critical to that, a critical element of that communication. And while our listeners can't see it, I actually am wearing a green T-shirt, uh, not necessarily in honor of President Zelensky, but I'm going to say it's in honor of President Zelensky because we are, you know, and, and I'm flying a Ukrainian flag outside of of our home here in Brooklyn uh, of, of Ukrainian ancestry. So anyway, uh, Rich, you ha- I know you want to get a little more technical I, 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 on some I, I, of the well, Russia no, issues. I, 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 I would just love to know, obviously, there's in, in – the Republican Party still a very active debate on where support for Ukraine is going to go. Um, the more isolationist wing pushing to cut off support is just starting to play out in presidential politics and on cable television. What, you know, I'm sure there are members of Congress calling you saying, you know, what is your view? What should we do? What do you think here? What's the strategy? What do you say to them? What is what is your take right now? And and are you concerned about the future of Republican support uh, in the war? Well, I'm gratified to hear that among some of the faux pas that I think candidate DeSantis has made early on uh, is his um, description of Ukraine, of the Ukraine situation as a territorial conflict. Uh, I think the vast majority of the Republican Party, with the exception of a few sort of isolationist hardliners, believe that we need to leave all options on the table vis-a-vis Ukraine. Uh, I'm one who goes even further than that. I'm for a complete, uh, you know, unfettered support of Ukraine until they conclusively drive Russia out of all occupied areas, including Crimea, even if that's done in stages. But I think it's an existential threat to Europe to have Russia in any way be rewarded for their incursion. I think that most of the Republican Party and certainly the Democrats are there. Um, It's the ultra-right and the ultra-left that I think uh, have far more of a voice than they deserve in this issue. That, and that's great to hear you say that, Ambassador, because, uh, you know, Rich, Rich often gets on me for the crazy things that the far left are doing, and they certainly they certainly do their fair share of, of, of crazy and uh, ill-advised things, but it's, it's great to hear you give us that honest assessment of where some in the, in the Republican Party are. Um, you've been a, you were a very critic of, uh, you had been a critic of the Nord Stream pi- 2 pipeline. How much of a strategic mistake was that? And why have there been no repercussions for people in Washington who argued against sanctions to stop it? Oh, how much of a strategic mistake was my criticism? Or no, how much no, 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 no. History, history. I'm is, happy is, to report. Shown, I'm or... happy to report as many things as I've screwed up. That was not one of them. <laughs> uh, but Jared's no, point's I, a good one. I mean, there's yeah. you know, where is the accountability for all those years of fighting to to let that pipeline go forward? And then, sure enough, here we are. Well, look, I think that a fair-minded person could say they were hoping, dreaming, wishing that this would be an element of normalization, of complete normalization of Western and Russian relations, and that, you know, commerce is always the great lubricant. Uh, But you can have commerce without putting yourself in a strategic bind. You can sell each other things. 
uh, and get to a point where if for whatever reason you want to stop selling or buying on either side, no one gets screwed because you always, always have alternative resources or sources for those, those items. When it came to Nord Stream, it was clearly a one-way uh, strategic advantage on the part of, of Russia against Europe. They were hooked on cheap gas. It's almost like a drug. And they also know that Putin's propensity to turn that gas off at a time of his choosing was always on the table, yet they were willing to conveniently ignore that. And I remember distinctly when Trump made a speech at the UN and he talked about exactly what I'm, what I'm discussing now, the camera cut away from him to the German delegation who were seated in the General Assembly and the Germans were laughing their heads off about what Trump was saying, like, you're crazy, this is never gonna happen. And sure enough, a few short years later, it's exactly what happened. So yes, I think it was a strategic mistake. I think it was not a mistake that was not foreseeable. This was a very foreseeable mistake. And Ambassador, do you think that there, there you know, ought to be some culpability for those in Washington who, I mean, certainly we ought to be, you know, regardless of party, we, we, there ought to be repercussions for folks uh, who argued against sanctions to, well, you know, on making this happen. Right, Rich? I, yeah, well, I, I, I think it's an interesting point because we're, this goes back to the last question about where Republicans are, where Democrats are today. I would even like pull back even further. And that is, I mean, just over 10 years ago, we had a presidential election with that big moment in a presidential debate between Romney and Obama. And Obama's making fun of Romney for saying Russia is the greatest strategic you know, threat to, to the United States today. You know, Republicans in Congress are fighting the Obama-Russia reset policy. Missile defense is at issue in Europe. I mean, all these things going on. I, I was fighting in the Senate at the time. And then suddenly today, it's like, well, you know, the Democrats are the ones who are tough on Russia. While, by the way, this administration just jumped right back into New Start at the beginning. We want to get into the nuclear side of all this. But, you know, the, now Democrats are tough on Russia. Republicans want to be pro-Russia. It's a, a Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, just the confusion of U.S. policy on both sides today with just nobody like saying, what is our interest? You well, know, this and, and goes how do you back define to my... Interest? You know, this goes back to my petulant phrase again. There is so much tribalism going on that our foreign policy is sometimes just being obscured by petulism um, or petulance, I should say, uh, in, in that we're acting in sometimes like little children. Well, if they want to do that, then I'm not going to do that. As opposed to they're right about this. They're right about this. They're right about this. They're wrong, 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 right, right, right. You, you, you have to be like an umpire and you have to call the balls and strikes and not say anything they want is bad. Anything I want is good. And I know that sounds so simplistic, but that's exactly what's going on right now. And, and Ambassador, to that point, you know, you've done what I consider to be one of the more patriotic things done by an American in the last, you know, last 20, 25 years when you went against a sitting president to tell the truth um, at an impeachment hearing, knowing full well that your career in that administration was going to be over as a result. Um, but yet you walked into that impeachment hearing and you testified truthfully about what you saw, what you heard, what you were told to do. And I guess 
what I'd love to ask you is on a human level, how does that affect you? Because that could not have been the most sort of comfortable time in your life and in, in your network going against a sitting president um, and effectively saying that he was lying. Well, I think a lot was made of, of very little in that entire matter. Um, I was one of the few witnesses that I believe had no real agenda when I finally had to appear before the committee. I wasn't there to hurt the president. I wasn't there to help the president uh, by being untruthful. I was simply there to relay to the committee exactly what I knew to the best of my ability. There was a lot made of my um, you know, revision of some testimony when I was reminded by subsequent uh, witnesses about certain meetings or certain things that happened that I had literally forgotten about. And once they described it in their testimony and they went into detail, I, all of a sudden my memory was jogged. And I said, you know, they're right. That did happen. I was at that meeting. I'd totally forgotten about it. I wasn't a note taker, so I didn't have notes. And I went back and said what so-and-so said was correct. That did happen. I was sitting there in the red chair next to the guy in the blue chair. When they went into that kind of granular detail, it tends to jog one's memory. And so I made those appropriate revisions and, and so on. As far as how the hearing affected me, well, I, I'm from originally from the Pacific Northwest, which is a very progressive part of the country. Uh, I'm a Republican. You know, I'm sort of a fish out of water there. And a lot of people in that community, uh, when they thought that I was originally there to help the president and lie to the committee on his behalf, which was not the case, uh, you know, basically had a knee-jerk reaction that wasn't borne out by my conduct in, in the hearing. And my conduct in the hearing, when you really go up to 30 or 40 or 50,000 feet, and you look at what I said or what I didn't say, it really wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that uh, meaningful at the end of the day. It was somewhat helpful to him on some issues and somewhat harmful to him on others, but it was the truth. Ambassador, uh, as we start looking to the future now, obviously 2024 already uh, beginning the, the fun uh, already in in Iowa, as we saw President Trump, Governor DeSantis, others uh, stumping there. Uh, are you looking at anybody in particular? Is any horse you're you're planning to back in twenty twenty four? And a separate question: What's next for you? Are you are you thinking about coming back to government at some point? Uh, well, as to the first question, um, I, I said I would not back Donald Trump, uh, primarily because of the January sixth uh, situation. Uh, prior to January 6th, uh, I, was, I was with him. Uh, and yes, there were some things he did that were not good. There were some things that he did that were great and everything in between. But on balance, I felt January 6th just sort of eviscerated my support for him. Uh, as to the other candidates, the Republicans really have an incredible field of both declared and undeclared candidates uh, looking to enter the race. And um, I think there are a number of them that could hit the ground running. Uh, I really have yet to spend time with several of them, so I have not made any decisions about who I want to back, who I want to throw my time, effort, money at in order to get them elected. 
uh, but I will do that in the very near future. Uh, in terms of my own government service, um, I'm back to running uh, my business. I'm in the real estate fund hospitality business. Uh, we have a pretty good sized company, a lot of employees. We're doing a lot of exciting projects around the United States, so that keeps me pretty busy. But if someone called and asked for my help, my advice, depending on who that person was and whether I felt that I could work with them, now that I really understand how these jobs work and, and what your role is, I would certainly consider it in the future. Ambassador, we're going to take you to the lightning round now, where we're going to ask you a few questions to get a little bit of a better sense of who you are as a person. Um, and so the first question I have is, do you have a favorite Yiddish or Hebrew word or phrase? And uh, profanity is allowed here as long as it's in another language. <laughs> uh, I have one. It's not profane. It's kochlefel. Explain that one. Do you know what that, do you know what that is? No. Explain, please. It, it literally, it literally, it's a Yiddish word. It literally means in German cooking spoon, but what it means figuratively in Yiddish is a pot stirrer, someone who's always trying to stir up trouble. Oh, that's a great one. And one we have not yet heard. Yeah. Good one for DC. I like that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Rich, you go. There are a lot of Kochlefels in Congress. Let me yes, tell you. Yes, yes. For sure. In fact, sure. Rich is on one of them. On and off the hill. On and off the yeah, hill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, favorite Jewish food? Uh, hmm. I, I can't say a ham sandwich, right? <laughs> that that would be frowned upon. That would uh, be frowned upon. Oh uh, no! Uh, I mean, phenomenal matzo ball soup. There's nothing like it. Uh, that's a, that's a good and very consistent answer. All right. Um, favorite synagogue or Jewish community in Europe that you came across? The the synagogue, the big synagogue in Brussels, and the name escapes me at the moment, but. It was a very impressive rabbi congregation. Uh, unfortunately, I could only go there twice, but uh, it left me with quite a memory. And I, I'm spacing as to the name of the shul. We will look it up and make sure it's available online. Uh, Ambassador Steinland, thank you so much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>